Friends, we are studying the book of James. We are in the second section of chapter 2. It is perhaps the most famous section of James. It is the most often quoted, the most often misquoted, um, and often most misunderstood. So it is a good thing that we're going to study it together this morning. Would you please pray with me? Holy God, we thank you for this good opportunity. Help us do something good with it. In your name we pray. Amen. Do you know what dead people do? I I want you to think about this for a second. This is not a great theological question. We're not going to talk about the soul and all of that kind of thing. But do you know what dead people do? They do nothing. That's kind of what it means to be dead. It means that they, they do absolutely nothing. And that nothingness is the chief concern of this section of James's letter to the believers in the church in Jerusalem this morning. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, but you don't supply for their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Once again, as I've reminded you every week that we've studied this, James is writing to believers. He's writing to us, to folks who are already seeking to follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus had a very interesting conversation all the way back in the book of John, John chapter 17, verse 24. He's talking with God the Father, and he says this. He says, Father, while on earth I have completed the works that you sent me to do. So James is not introducing a new term here. Work is not a new term that that James wants the church to see. This is something that Jesus talked about. And the book of James is your instruction manual on how you follow Jesus. So what are these works that Jesus was talking about? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, he completed a work of salvation. And what that means is it it means that its most basic level... We are saved from our sins by Christ alone. So it's not Jesus plus something else. Not Jesus plus good behavior. Not Jesus plus going to church, although I love having you here at church, so please keep doing that. Um, Not Jesus plus anything else. But Jesus, through his work on the cross and through the empty tomb, saved us through his work. Now, as a follower of Jesus, our job is to plug into Jesus' life. And if Jesus is the life, then that is our source of life. So if we are kind of running on empty, we have to plug back into Jesus. And that's really why we're here. That's why we come to church. If it weren't for our desire to follow and walk with Jesus specifically— there wouldn't be a whole lot of reason for us to gather or, or really for there to be a Christian faith. Our purpose, our motivation, our energy source is Christ alone. So if you take Jesus out of the picture, there's, there's really no need for us to do this thing that we call church. There's no point to it. And if Jesus is our purpose— and following him then is our goal, if Jesus did work, then for us to truly follow him means that we have work to do as well. The work that Jesus did for us 
begins the work in us. When we follow Jesus with our lives, not just with our words, but with our lives, what we find is that our lives are going to be transformed. They're going to be different because of Jesus. The problem, James says, though, are that there's too many people in the church who don't actually live that life. And verse 15 kind of calls everybody onto the carpet. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do nothing to supply for their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So what James is saying here is that we reveal our highest convictions and our deepest faith by our actions, not by our words. And James gives this an example. If you're looking around the community and you see someone who is clearly hungry, clearly in need, and your response to them is, I want you to be well, go get something to eat, be warm tonight, that reveals a dead faith if you're not actually planning on doing anything to facilitate that end. Now, I think a lot of times we think, okay, so does that mean every time there's a, there's a person on the street begging, we give them money? Not necessarily, no. But what it means is that if you're going to pray for something, and you can be a part of answering that prayer, and you choose not to do it, well, then you have what we call a dead faith. James is kind of making this more personal because he's talking about people that um, are not necessarily the people that you see out on the street. He's talking about a single mom working two jobs, trying to keep food on the table, an elderly person in the life of the church who has no family, living on a severely limited income. Just because someone isn't standing on a street corner doesn't mean that they aren't in any less need of our attention and care. And sometimes, church, they're a lot harder to see and to find and to assist. So we have to be really, really careful when we casually go up to somebody and say, I'm praying for you. Now, this is not to downplay the importance of prayer. However, sometimes, if we're honest, we church folks will hide behind prayer so that we don't actually have to do anything. Now, let me give you an example. I'm going to tell you about something that pastors know that I think congregation members think that we don't know, but we've been doing this a while that we do know. So here's how this works. If I call you up and I know that you have the time or the resources, or the ability, or the skill to do something, which, by the way, if I'm calling you up in the first place, chances are I already know this about you, and your immediate response, we didn't even take a breath, you just saw my, you saw my phone number come up on your caller ID, and your immediate response is, I'll pray about it, I already know that the answer is no. I already know that, because what's happened is, I took you off guard, and what you're praying about is, oh man, she caught me, I need an excuse, Lord Jesus, give me a good reason not to do this. So, just in case you didn't think we knew this, we, we know. So, I want you to imagine this scenario. Let's just pretend that all of us have a severe lapse of judgment, and we move up north. And we get up there, and we, winter comes along, and I don't know if you knew this or not, but winter up north is cold. So, we go to church, and in comes into the church, comes one of our own members. 
Clearly, their clothing is thin. Clearly, it is raggedy. Clearly, they are cold. And so we get struck with a righteous compassion, and we go up to them, and we offer to pray for them because we know that they are in need. And what we ask in that prayer is that God would provide for them. Guess what? God already did. You're standing right there. There's a good possibility that you have a coat. It might be back home in your closet, but you've got a coat that you can give to them right then and there. If they need a warm meal, you are probably going to be someone who can provide it. If they need a ride somewhere, you're likely to be someone who has the means to help them with that. We tend to think that our prayers are about compelling God to action, when in fact, through prayer, God is compelling us to action, preparing our hearts to go and do something. Is a prayer for a coat going to keep someone warm? Is a prayer for a warm meal going to feed somebody? You might not want to hear this, but the answer is no. No, it, it is not. Not unless you do something about it. Faith without works is dead. Now, it's interesting because here in this passage, James already knows that he's got a little fight brewing because there's the people that are saying, well, you know what? I'll show you my faith. You show me your works. We'll go about this separately. They're two different things. We don't need to combine them. And James says that's nonsense. Nonsense. It's one thing to know that you have a dead faith because if you know, then at least you can do something about it or you could just be honest and say that it's a dead faith. But if you haven't confronted the reality that you have a dead faith, then, then you're going to run into some danger. And the serious danger for most people who find themselves in churches all over the world on Sunday mornings is that they come to church, they check in on Sunday mornings, but they don't give, they don't serve, they don't teach, they don't offer to do anything, and most importantly, they don't care. So if that's the case, what's, what's the point? What's the point? Why even bother hanging on to the tradition of gathering as the church if it's not going to transform anything about your life? It's, it's not like the church saves you. Nowhere in Scripture do we read the church saves. What we read is that we are saved by Jesus. And that brings us right back to the argument at the beginning of the sermon. If we are saved by Jesus, if we're transformed by Jesus, and, and therefore our lives have really truly been changed, if that makes a difference to us, then we're going to follow him, not out of compulsion or guilt, but because we want to. And because of that, we're going to be compelled to act. Jesus did stuff. Jesus worked. He prayed. He prayed a lot. And he knew the scriptures, and he went to worship. But when there was a need, Jesus moved to action. So the question, church, is, are we moving to action? Are you moving to action? What have you done to show that your life has been changed by Jesus, and because Jesus is in your life. If you're having a hard time coming up with an answer, maybe you need to decide if, if it's possible that your faith is on some kind of life support. This summer, this summer I'm going to do something that I haven't done in a long time. I've been asked to speak at this thing called the New Wilmington Missionary Conference up in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania. 
It is the largest and oldest missionary conference in the world. And they asked me for something very specific. They have asked me to keynote a week-long series of talks to college students and young adults. College students and young adults. So <clears throat> I was approached about doing this two years ago, and I have to tell you my first response was, I'll pray about it. <laughs> right? And I said no. I already knew I was going to say no, but I wanted to make sure that they knew I was righteous about it. So I made sure to tell them I would pray about it. And um, I called them back the next day, and clearly the Spirit had spoken to me. But they called back. They called back and they said, okay, how about now? How about now? Well, think about this for a second. This is a missionary conference. I'm not a missionary. I've never been a missionary. That's not my background. That's not my heart. That's not my passion. I'm a local church person. I do life with the same people week after week, day after day, and I love it. It's my call. So why would I go speak to that group? And it's not because I'm a young adult anymore, because I am not, despite my best efforts to the contrary. So what, what on earth do I need to be doing talking to, to that particular group of people? So the director says to me, she goes, well, Hope, you have a little bit of a reputation. That's always a scary way to start a conversation. <laughs> and she said, she said, you know, we've seen you speak at conferences, we've seen you teach at different things, and what we've noticed is that um, sometimes you have a tendency to lose your pastoral filter. <laughs> you know what that is? The pastoral filter is that thing that says, oh, I can't possibly say that on a Sunday morning because I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings, and then somebody's going to be offended, and that's going to be bad, and there's going to be tears and crying, and we don't want that, so I won't say it at all, and I'll just make it really happy. But I guess they picked up that I gave up on that idea a long time ago, and apparently uh, what needs to be said to this, this group of people, these young people, is that we cannot be a generation that claims to believe in Jesus Christ and yet live our lives as though nothing has changed. If your life shows no discernible difference from your non-believing neighbor, then there's a good chance that your faith is dead. And that's what they're hoping I'm going to talk to these young adults about. It's not about being a good person, because there's lots and lots and lots of good people who don't believe in Jesus. They hold doors, they bring in your trash can, they invite you to their barbecues, they are running on karma and common decency. What goes around comes around. None of which is bad. None of which is bad. But it does say, it does say that their belief system is that they are entirely dependent on themselves and on their own actions. That is a heavy thing to carry for your whole life that everything that happens is totally 100% dependent on you. And the, the thing that we have, the thing that is so precious to us, is that Jesus took that weight off of us. We are saved by him and saved by him alone, and there is nothing that we can do to change that. James points out that even the demons believe in God. Even the demons believe in God, but they're not transformed by it. And he's putting those that claim to be followers of Christ, but who do nothing on a level that is slightly lower than the demons. And then he gives these two examples of Old Testament people who reflected their faith and their works. And, and one is really common. It's Abraham. And I think, I think most church people, 
Most church people get the story of Abraham. He was faithful. He followed God all over the New Testament, all over the ancient world. And, and then when God wanted to test his faith, he took his son Isaac up the mountain and they marched all the way up there. And, and Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. And at the last second, a ram was provided and it showed Abraham's faithfulness and it showed God's faithfulness. And we know that story, but that's not what I want to talk about. The one that I want to talk about is Rahab. Because we don't do too many sermons on prostitutes in the church, but Rahab was a prostitute. And Rahab talks to those of us who maybe are ashamed of ourselves, who maybe have done some things that we're not incredibly proud of. And and here's the amazing thing about Rahab, is that Rahab's story tells us that God cares about people like us that he cares about those of us who, who've done those things that, that aren't brag-worthy, that really have hurt us or hurt other people. God loves us. And, and Rahab's story demonstrates that. That's, that actually is the real problem with religion, because the problem with religion is that if you're a good person, you can save yourself. And then you get to that point where you say, like Rahab, but I'm not a good person. I, what do I do now? Rahab's a prostitute. Do you know what it's like to be a prostitute thousands of years ago? It wasn't any more glamorous or special than it is right now. No more socially acceptable. Now you think, at some point, Rahab's going to die. And she's going to stand there before the good and righteous God of the universe, and God's going to say to Rahab, all right, Rahab, you tell me. What did you do to earn your salvation? What is she going to say? I was a good prostitute? No. No. And Rahab's story tells us that it's not about us. It's about what Jesus has done for us and about the love that God has for us. But what happens for Rahab and why her story is so important this morning is that Rahab knew and experienced the love of God. It came to her through God's people. She meets God's people, she believes in God, and she is immediately changed. She's immediately transformed. She responds not with just a verbal faith, but with an immediate action. Because see, what's going on in Rahab's story is that you've got some men who have come to her, they have introduced her to our God, She is changed by it, but these men are also under attack. They've got a whole army following them. And Rahab makes this choice, makes this choice to put her own life in danger to give these men coverage to get out safely. That's how quickly and radically her life is transformed. She doesn't say to them, oh, I believe in God. Let me pray for you to safely get out of here before you get killed by this horde of men coming after you. No, she puts her own life on the line to help them. She has experienced God's love, and she's going to let it flow out through other people. Friends, we're not called to be religious people. We're not. We're called to be followers of Jesus. And what we can see from Jesus' life is that there was this careful balance of faith and works. We cannot argue that Jesus didn't study the word He studied it and he taught it. We cannot argue that Jesus didn't pray. That would be a complete denial of scripture. But we also cannot argue that Jesus did not do something. Once again, I want to bring you back to the Garden of Gethsemane. We've been talking about that a lot the last couple of weeks. Jesus is in the garden 
and he's praying to God, and he knows that his death is near. And in essence, what he's praying is, God, do something, which is effectively what we claim when we tell somebody that we're going to pray for them or we're going to pray about a situation. God, do something. You don't have anything to eat? Let me pray for you. God, do something. This lady has nothing to eat. Lord, help her. Do you remember what happens after Jesus prayed in Gethsemane? He went to the cross and he died. And he was resurrected because God did something. That was the prayer, do something. Jesus prayed, God heard, God provided. Jesus did something. We claim that we want God to do something. That's what we say when we start talking about our prayer life. When you're asking God to do something, consider the fact that he might be yelling back to you saying, I am doing something. It's you. It's you. If you are praying about something and there's even the remotest chance that you can do something to alleviate whatever it is that you are praying about, do it. Just do it. God will give you the Holy Spirit to come alongside of you to give you the power, but to pray with the idea that it absolves you from any further effort means that your faith is buried far deep in the depths of the morgue. So what do you think, church? What do you think? Are, are we alive? Do we have an active faith as a church? Do you have a living faith? Are you giving? Are you serving? Are you involved? Are you engaged in ministry? Because here's the question. Are we religious or are we alive? Because you see, faith without works is dead. Let's pray together. Lord God, we we confess that we are actually pretty good at prayer. We're particularly pretty good at prayer when we don't want to do something. We ask, Lord, that, that you'd help change our hearts that you would transform our lives, that that we would understand that you have called us to do something. And that if we're transformed by you, that if our lives have been changed, then our call is to get up and do the things that you did, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to be with the hurting. Lord, as, as a congregation, we've got some choices to make coming up here real soon we got choices about who's going to teach our little ones, who's going to go into the nursery, who's going to provide for the Christian education of our growing church. Lord, we, we need to decide, are, are we alive? Are we dead? Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us. To God be the glory, now and forever. Amen. And amen.